Welcome to this episode of the Loop Ventures Brain Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Clinton. On today's show, we have Misha Lebedev from Duke's Neurobiology Lab. Misha is an expert in brain-machine interfaces, connecting machines to the human brain. We talked to him about how to translate digital signals to brain signals and vice versa, as well as full-body prosthesis. Now here's Misha Lebedev. Misha, thanks for joining us on the podcast. You're very welcome, and thank you for inviting me for this interview. Great. We're happy to have you. And brain-machine interface is really, we think, one of the most exciting fields in neuroscience, and obviously that happens to be your field of expertise. But before we dive in there, we'd really love to start from the beginning of your career. And can you talk to us about what sparked your interest in neuroscience? So I started my career in science with some studies of human motor control, and I conducted the studies in Russia at the laboratory of Viktor Gurfinkel. So he's pretty famous in this human motor control field. At the same time, I was interested in studying the brain more directly. And I was always interested in the single unit recordings from the brain or from awake behaving monkeys, something that Edward Everett started in the late 60s. So in the early 90s, I went to the United States to train in this field. So I worked with Randall Nelson, and I also got my PhD in this field. Since then, I worked in the field that you can call neurophysiology of awake behaving animals. The idea is that you have an animal, a monkey or a rat, and this animal performs some behavioral tasks, and you insert an electrode in the brain. So the brain doesn't have pain receptors, so the animal does not feel any pain or anything. So it can perform the task while we record activity of neurons in different brain areas. And the tasks can be motor tasks or cognitive tasks, memory, attention, etc. So I was doing this in different laboratories, including the laboratory of Steve Weiss at NIH. About um, the mid-90s, the field of brain-machine interfaces started to develop rapidly, and Miguel Nicolelis is a pioneer of this field, so I went to work with him. The experiment is somewhat close to what I was doing. It is um, sampling activity in a behaving animal, but now you connect this activity that you record from the brain to an external device, for example, a screen cursor or a robotic arm that moves. This field has both practical purposes, like cure paralysis or augment brain function in certain ways, but it also actually helps fundamental science because when you learn how to decode brain activity, you start to understand what this brain activity means better. So this is in brief <laughs> what I'm doing. It's a great overview. One thing I'd love to dig into when we talk to people about brain-machine interfaces, they always get hung up on how do you translate computer code into something the brain understands and vice versa. So maybe from a high level, how do you think about that sort of encoding and decoding process between the two entities? 
So curiously, sending information to the brain is somewhat easier than decoding because you know what you send to the brain and the brain can then figure out and plastically adapt to understand your message. Because of this, I think we will foresee great advances in sensory neural prosthesis, like neural prosthesis that restore hearing, vision, other senses, but the work on decoding brain activity will go slower. And the major problem is that we do not really know the brain code to begin with. So what we know is that if we require some kind of activity, let's say activity of single neuron or local field potential, so maybe EEGs, etc., this activity will be correlated with the parameter that we are interested in, for example, movements of an artificial arm. But correlation doesn't mean causation, and we may be even dealing with some epiphenomenological relationships, like a neuron increases its firing rate because it is processing some kind of information and uses a certain code, but we call this like an increase of firing rate to move the arm. So we use this increase of firing rate as a command signal to a robotic arm. But in reality, this neuron could be doing something else in the brain. But science is developing, And I think that eventually we will reach a better understanding of the brain code and we will get better to real decoding. And Misha, as you think about our understanding of the brain's code, is that really the biggest challenge right now to creating a reliable and usable brain-machine interface? Yes, absolutely. This may be the key because if you look at the literature, the current idea is that maybe if you implant millions of electrodes and record simultaneously from millions of brain neurons, then you will be able to decode better. But the problem here is that even if you record all these millions of neurons, without knowledge of the brain code, you will not advance much. And you cannot really implant like every neuron in the brain. Probably what you need to do is record from some reasonable number of neurons simultaneously, but have a real good understanding of the encoding principles of the brain. I will give you an example. Let's say if I show you some music as a graph on the screen, the graph will look pretty noisy to you, and it will be very hard for you to decode it visually or to decode it even using some algorithms. But If you connect this record to an audio and listen, you will immediately realize that this is music or speech, etc. So why do you understand this? Because you know the code. So we need to reach this milestone with brain-machine interface research as well. That makes sense. It's a big challenge for us to to achieve too. And maybe with that sort of in mind as the ultimate goal, how many years away do you think we are from having an FDA-approved implantable brain-machine interface that's maybe widely used, widely being in quotes, because obviously there's very specific use applications? But how do you think about that as the ultimate goal? This actually may be pretty close because implants don't have to be very invasive. There are interfaces of different level of invasiveness you can 
insert electrodes directly to the brain. You can put electrodes on the surface of the brain, or you can even record like just from the surface of the head. So probably intermediate solution would be something like grid of electrodes sitting on the surface of the brain. This one can be implanted easily. And in fact, for example, for diagnosis of epileptic people, this is used all the time. So this may be actually not such a bad idea because, of course, our body has all kinds of receptors, but adding more sensors wouldn't hurt. Ideally, since our technology is developing, we want to put in the body more sensors and maybe even better sensors in certain cases than those created by nature. When we are able to build safe, fully implantable devices that go to the brain you know, to create problems, I think this will be approved. Definitely for some patients, maybe even for ordinary person who wants to monitor the state of his brain. So probably within maybe 10 years, this will happen. So we will be seeing more and more of these devices. It's exciting to hear. It'll be a fun future for everyone. One thing that we wanted to talk about, I know in the past you've spoken about this idea of like a full body prosthesis to essentially extend the lifespan of the brain, which is the one organ or one organ that sort of tends to survive or could survive outside of the body. And I'd love to maybe just dig in there. And for the audience, could you describe what a full body prosthesis would entail? There are different possible applications. First of all, we have a population of quadriplegic people, people who had, say, spinal cord injury, and they are paralyzed. The body is completely paralyzed. But if you ask them what kind of mobility or functions they want, then body mobility is one of their preferred functions. And of course, you can put this patient on a wheelchair and he will move in the wheelchair, but it wouldn't be great if this person could just stand upright and move. This is actually already developing, but not for the case of quadriplegic people, but for the case of paraplegic people, the ones who have paralyzed legs, but the arms and trunk are normal. So for them, in many countries of the world, exoskeletons are being developed. And this person who used a wheelchair now puts an exoskeleton on his legs, and now he can move in the street. And they all have very positive emotions from this. And this is actually good for their health. And even you can restore function with these devices. The next step would be to make this exoskeleton brain control. So you don't just press buttons to move this exoskeleton, but you just send direct brain commands for this exoskeleton to move. One step, another step, you just command from the brain. Some work is being done already. So there have been some publications where brain commands are used to guide such exoskeletons. So this is quite feasible. It is actually developing already. There are, of course, alternative approaches, and they will be definitely developing, like some approaches for regeneration of nerves, like reconnecting the spinal cord to the brain, but like the approach of brain-machine interfaces where you use artificial devices will also develop. 
So probably in the future, we will have some hybrid systems where brain-machine interface approach and uh, other approaches are combined to rehabilitate these people. They will start with using this whole body brain-machine interface, and hopefully they will end up restoring their motor function. And it sounds like the full-body prosthesis is being developed sort of in parallel with brain-machine interfaces. So do you think that that's something that happens in the next 10 years too, or is there sort of a longer development horizon for that? No, I think this is mostly a robotic problem. Robotics has its own issues, but they are different from like interfacing to the brain. Here, everything is already known, like body mechanics is known, etc., etc. So you just need to develop better actuators for the robots, better power supply, and better control algorithms. And all this is quite feasible. So I would give the same 10 years time frame for this. We've talked a lot about how brain-machine interface can improve the physical aspects of humanity, but I know that you also have spent some time at the National Institute of Mental Health. So what's your perspective on how BMI can improve the mental health industry? Very good question. When we talk about brain-machine interfaces, we usually describe a device that works for motor function, like you command uh, an artificial arm to move and it moves. But the brain, of course, does many other functions. I will name a few, like attention, memory, processing of different kinds of sensations, visual, auditory, olfactory, spatial processing, processing emotions, solving abstract tasks, what is called executive control, like a higher level planning of your actions. So all these can be approached with brain-machine interfaces, and even cases of mental diseases can be approached as well. For this, we need to understand better what exactly a mental pathology is, and then try to use an interface to deal with this cause of problem. In many cases, neurological diseases are caused by abnormal brain activity. For example, in the case of Parkinsonian disease, some abnormal births develop in deep brain nuclei. So deep brain stimulation is used to suppress these abnormal births. A brain-machine interface version of such a deep brain stimulator would record activity, detect pathological words, and only when they are detected, it will apply electrical stimulation. Similar idea can be applied to other kind of mental diseases, because it may even be that each type of mental disease is associated with its type of pathological activity. For example, epileptic seizures are bursts in the cortex. Then, if a particular type of cortex is malfunctioning, then we can apply electrical stimulation to this part of the cortex. So these brain-machine interface-based methods 
is quite a feasible alternative to pharmacological approaches. It is quite possible that when a person with mental disability is treated in the future, instead of drug prescriptions, he will get a device that works with the brain and tries to reshape this brain activity using brain plasticity mechanisms. I think that's a point that people a lot of times don't grasp fully for brain-machine interfaces is how much of an impact it can have with the way that we treat brain disorders and the way we use pharmaceuticals. So I think that's a really powerful part of brain-machine interface development as well. Absolutely. I think that in the pretty near future, this brain-machine interface will be as commonly applied to treatment of disabilities as pharmacological approaches are. Actually, in many senses, this approach may be better than pharmacology because pharmacology in many cases is not that specific as one would like. There are more generalized effects and side effects, um, adaptation, etc., etc., with brain-machine interface, you can imagine that a person gets a specific interface for his specific problem. For example, very specific plane in the brain is stimulated with a very specific pattern. And moreover, the person can receive neural feedback of his brain activity and then through some kind of training, use plasticity mechanisms that exist in the brain to normalize his function. That makes sense. Misha, I'd like to shift gears maybe to our last two questions here. And the first one is most brain-machine interface research and progress has been made on the academic side to date over the last several decades. And more recently, there have been a few higher-profile private companies that have started to work in the brain-machine interface world, which is Kernel and Neuralink. And I'm curious how you think about their entrance into this field. Do you think it's a good thing or maybe a bad thing for the future of BMI? I think this is a very good thing. Technically, this is just a different way to finance the field. And it makes very good feel because when it is a business enterprise, then eventually it wants to get some profit. So probably it will look at the market of who needs this, what kind of patients would benefit from this, the populations of these patients, etc. And also even consumer applications. So when you have this market goal, market will regulate as opposed to like pure fundamental science reasons where you mostly do this for fun. You just want to understand this, but not necessarily like these practical applications are your first priority. Another thing is that brain-machine interfaces are becoming more technologically heavy. You really need multidisciplinary contributions, like material science engineers should contribute, computational scientists should contribute, and maybe the business platform is a good way to combine these inputs more productively. But of course, we will have to see what comes out of these companies. Absolutely. Yeah, I think innovation will continue to happen on both sides. So it is definitely good for the industry. And that brings us to our last question. This is just a fun one that we like to ask everybody on the show. And that is, what's your favorite neuroscience book that you'd recommend to the audience? Okay, my favorite neuroscience book, I forgot the name of this book, but this is a book by Ramon Cajal. 
basically Ramon Cajal, a Spanish scientist, he was the one who started neuroscience. And what was he doing? He was making slices of the brain, staining brain cells, and actually drawing by hand what he saw on the microscope. So probably, like everybody who is interested in neuroscience seriously should have this book by Roman <laughs> Unfortunately, I forgot the exact name. It is something like Organization of the Brain, but <laughs> I will have to look it, That's okay. look it up. We'll find it and we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Exactly. Good recommendation. <laughs> well, that's it for today, Misha. Thanks for being on the show again. Thank you. Appreciate mm-hmm. your time and we'll talk soon. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Thanks.